This is Jezology. It's a real science, honestly. Not just a podcast of me talking about me. Or, or maybe it is. It's Jezology. Hello and welcome to the Jazzology podcast. My name is Jeremy Johnson and I'm a singer-songwriter and will be your host for the next hour. This series is based upon a number of Instagram lives I did in late 2020 when I invited a number of incredible musicians and singer-songwriters who have been part of my musical journey over the last few years to come on Instagram, have a chat about life, about music and play a couple of songs. This is episode five and features the incredible Jerome Arab, who is a Zimbabwe-born singer-songwriter that I met at a BBC conference in London in 2019. So without further ado, let's go to the chat. Mr. Jerome Arab, welcome, sir. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, bro? Mate, I'm good. Well, I mean, obviously, apart from the obvious um, with all musicians, um, but I'm sure we're going to cover that tonight. But I'm actually doing really well. Like, I've actually quite enjoyed the mellow nature of lockdown number two. And um, I feel like I've been relatively productive. I've got some music coming up. I've got some new projects. I'm feeling good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought what the way we'd start is, the way I usually start with these is that I'll have a little chat about how we know each other and um uh, a little bit about our little our paths to music and then what i'd like what i love to do because i i often with these i mean when i first started doing them i i i knew the people quite well who i'd see the first few with but then as i've moved on i've actually it's been really nice to sort of like get to know the stories of the musicians that i sort of know and obviously we've met before and anyway so um you and i met at bbc music introducing live um was it two years ago or was it one yeah, year ago? Was, it, was, was, it, was two, was it two years ago yeah. or was it last year? Last year. I think it was last year. Yeah, it was last year. It was last year. The story goes that we, um, it, BBC Music Introducing Live, uh, I think it was the second day, if memory serves, they have an open mic stage in the main hall in fact there's a few dotted around and i thought to myself you know what i'm going to go and do the open mic i'm going to get there nice and early i'm going to get a spot it's going to be all good and what happened every other musician (laughs) had the same plan so i turned up and i was in the queue with you and um remind me of the remind me of his name was it is it um robert um anyway there's another chap and, he, and we were we were the last three musicians and the guy goes oh sorry guys i've only got one slot left and we were like oh shit like what are we going to do so in the end um we decided to share the stage and have a little jam and like it was literally the first session of the day nobody was watching but we made a connection and the network works right so yeah i mean we had fun it was it was quite easy it was just like okay well we're here and there's one slot you know Let's do it. <laughs> you know, and I think I think that's for me. That's what introducing live is all about. And I think that the the danger is that I sort of went into that situation thinking that oh no, it's okay. I'll get I'll get a prime slot, and then I'll have lots of people, influential people watching me. And it'll be all good, and it'll be good for my career. But actually, in retrospect, I was missing the point. Which is the point was exactly what we did. Which is that we just went. You know, there's one slot. We'll share it. We'll play some good music. We'll we'll make some friends. 
and it's been beneficial. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really true. It was it was quite interesting because like when you talk about missing the point, I feel like a lot of people go to BBC introducing with really high expectations of yeah. this is a, a career changer. But yeah. the truth is when you've been in the industry for a very long time, you realize that it's just another networking event. It's just For another sure. yeah. opportunity to meet a few people that may or may not change what you're doing. Like they yeah. may amplify it, they may not. You, d- yeah. you don't know. You're just yeah. giving yourself an extra step, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I, you, you can certainly see that. I mean, I, I don't want to talk about intro live too much because a lot of people have no yeah. idea what we're talking about. But I do feel like with those sort of conferences... Um, there's you do see certain people who are very they're, they're sort of like oh I must talk to this person who's on stage you know otherwise my career is not going to go anywhere and so there's this almost like this desperation to chat yeah. to the bigwigs and they just have no interest because they know they know the score they know the system and um, it, it's really for me intro live um, has been about the people who I've had coffees with you know and I remember his name now Connor Connor Patterson yes Connor <laughs> well done anyway so jerome um i thought um what we could do is um i i'm fascinated by your history and your journey in music because a lot of the people that i've interviewed so far for these sessions these little guest lives um have been you know european um born and bred european musically educated and um I believe it or not, I'm actually a massive fan. I actually lived in Angola for two years. I think we may have discussed this a little bit when um, when I when I saw you at BBC Introducing Live. But I'm a massive fan of uh, Southern Africa and Southern African rhythms and beats. And I don't really incorporate it into my music, but I, I think it's such a privilege for me to talk to someone who was born and raised, I believe, in Zimbabwe. Yeah. And um, basically has a completely different viewpoint on the industry and on music in general and i'd love to hear your history like how did you get into it how did the how did your path evolve through music it's funny i was thinking about this the other day i was like oh wait how did i get into music and then i remember my dad used to play he used to play a bunch of like songs just in in his room on his guitar um i must have been about five five or six i'm about five years old and i'd go into his room and just watch him and yeah. he'd play like Bob Marley and all of these songs and, and I just I just listen and like the following I remember it was about a week or a week and a half and then I was kind of singing along and my dad was like oh, okay well he done Motown the show but the theater show in Zimbabwe yeah uh, and okay. he needed to rehearse so he's a small man too he, he his dad used to always like my dad has an amazing voice but his dad would make fun of him and everyone was like, oh, that's not a career. So he never ever considered it to be a career, you know? So he's always done it just in his room. Motown was his first like public show, um, amateur theater, public show, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And he asked me, he was like, oh, well, I need to learn the backing vocals for Michael Jackson. So do you mind learning? Um, like, um, I want you back. I'll be there. And I think it was um, Rock and Robin you know, yeah. an ABC, there were four songs. And yeah. I literally was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And that kind of started me off because I learned those lyrics. And my sisters used to also like listen to other people's songs and I'd then learn those songs and make up my own songs because I couldn't really read and write at the age of like five, six. But then sure. by the time I got, yeah, I got to about 10, 
because of listening to so much music. And also, we, I don't know if you remember the times where we used to write notes, like, like, like write the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, pre, yeah, pre-internet, you had to do everything differently. <laughs> <laughs> Just find the lyric sheet, you know, you had to like sit there and listen to it and notice it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, so that actually started my writing because I would basically right. do it for my sisters for money. They're like, oh, I like that song. I'm like, okay, cool. I'll write yeah. out the lyrics. You yeah, can yeah. pay me. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I just sit there and it's like, yeah. play. Okay, okay. And I, I, you know, you don't realize when you're doing it, but all it's doing is it's actually enlightening like you to a potential career path without you even realizing sure. at that time. Because yeah. that led to poetry. And then I also understood melody a little bit better because of listening to so much music and actually storing that music in my head without even realizing you know? For sure, yeah. It's it's interesting yeah. You, you say that because I think at a, at a formative age, it's amazing how much of a difference that makes to your sort of your path as a musician and what you gravitate towards. Like uh, I, for example, so I, I started doing full time music about three years ago, and I went very much into the um, melancholic singer songwriter domain because that was my sort of like you know that was my comfort zone as it were, and um, and then to to pay the bills, I've been doing a lot of function gigs, so I've been going back and saying, okay, well what songs do I like to sing that, that, that sort of have been written by other people? And I found it's a lot of soul, it's a lot of Motown, a lot of disco. So I'm like learning all of these songs exactly like you did when you were five. And um, it's bringing back, and I think the reason why I'm drawn to it is because my mum was massively into Motown and she, that's what she played when she was younger. So it all kind of comes full circle, you know, it's amazing. Yeah, it does. You're so right. Like Stevie Wonder, people can hear Stevie Wonder. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Stevie. And a lot of my music, yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. Oh, you sounded a bit like Stevie Wonder there. And it's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> not, a bad, not a bad comparison. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that was kind of how I started, if you ask me, getting into to, to music. I was privileged in the sense that my uncles were also at the top of the pops in um, okay. Rhodesia. So right. now this is early Zimbabwe. We're going into the 90s there. And yeah. they were called the Rusiki brothers. So we would open for them singing the same songs that I learned when I was about now seven, eight. So I'd go and sing Michael Jackson and stuff on stage to open for my uncles. Um, yeah, with my cousins. So yeah. it was kind of like, my dad never ever, he was never like, oh, this is going to be the boy's career path. It was like, oh, you've got something to do this weekend. Yeah. Cool. You know? Yeah, yeah. But I was just fascinated by the reactions that I would get, you know? And that was singing other people's songs. And then people would ask us to do weddings. You know, they'd ask my dad and I, oh, do you guys want to sing at the wedding? Oh, you know? And my dad would get backtracks and we'd rehearse. Yeah. And my dad he had so much knowledge for somebody that didn't actually live in that industry. You know, he would just be like, no, you need to learn the songs. You should make each song your own, sing it your way, not the way that it was recorded by the other artists, you know, find the soul of the song and, and try your best to communicate with it and communicate that to the audience. And it was amazing looking back. Like he, he was probably the reason why I chose this career path, even though he probably doesn't, he didn't want me at the time to, to go this way he would have loved for me at the time to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it is but yeah, yeah he kind of shaped shaped where i was going with it he was like yeah you're gonna yeah. do this without him realizing it yes 
How amazing. And, and so as you, as you sort of grew and, and got, got older and, and, and moved more into music and what, how was that, what was that transition between, I guess, doing it as a, as an amateur and then deciding that you wanted to move forward and, and sort of at least explore what it meant to be a, to be a full-time musician and, and sort of have it as a career path. Where was that, where was that transition for you? I probably made the choice to be a full-time creative at the age of, I'd say, 13, um, when I got into Allied Arts, um, which is basically like a theater competition um, that's run. It's Eisteddfords. I don't know if you have them here, where it's like theater competitions, basically. I mean, and I'm sure yeah. we do. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. So I, I'd won. I'm a late um, bloomer, so <laughs> I, don't, I have no idea how that's the stuff, but... Yes, yeah, so I was into a whole lot of um, poetry, um, acting, so short like news readings, all of that stuff, and I'd basically compete, like public speaking, and I'd done reasonably well. You know, I got offered a scholarship for it. By the age of sixteen, I had um, national colours for my contribution to the arts in Zimbabwe because I had done over fifty something productions in the space of three years. Yeah. So. I had dedicated my life to being a creative from the age of 13. Um, songwriting, I had been songwriting on and off from, from that age as well. But I'd say 2008, I recorded my first song ever. Um, and that was in Manchester, um, just college. Um, I recorded yeah. my first song ever in 2008. By 2000 and... 12, I had started performing, like opening for other artists and, you know, um, learning a little bit more about the gigging side of things, like putting myself out there, trying to do open mics. And because I'm not a, a guitarist and I'm not an instrumentalist and I can't really accompany myself, I'd go and jam with other artists or I would, um, you know, find like DJs and get them to mix instrumentals and I'd just jump on the mic. Yeah, yeah. That was how I, I started to build my career, you know, yeah. um, club, club gigs, acoustic gigs. They used to call me one strum J, not much yeah. has changed. <laughs> Just one, one chord, strumming the same chord, is that the... <laughs> So pretty much um, that's like now going 2008 to 2012, learning the ropes. 2013, I, I recorded some stuff in 2012 and in 2013 it got released internationally for the first time in my life. I yeah. was in the top 10 beatport charts and recognized as an international EDM artist because I was rapping over EDM songs. Okay. And I was like, oh, maybe I can actually do this thing. You know, yeah, like yeah. maybe, maybe there's something there and I can, I can do this thing. Um, still didn't know much about the industry. It's kind of like, I'm just enjoying what I'm doing and I'm learning. Yeah. Yeah. Went back to Africa due to um, a few problems here in England. Um, paperwork issues um sure so i ended up going yeah i ended up going back to africa to try and gain some sort of confidence back and also make a way to, to move forward to progress because with no paperwork it's very hard in any industry in any country to progress so that just so happened and when i got back to africa i don't know what to do with myself uh, yeah. my cousin was recording so i tried to record with him couldn't get anything that I felt was solid. Spoke to one of my uncles. He kind of recorded me. Didn't feel like I had found my element. Tried to incorporate local languages to try and reach more people. 
didn't really work. Ended up on Big Brother Africa. Um, yeah, the when first you, time round. You were yeah. actually in Big Brother Africa. The first time round, I went in as an actor to confuse the housemates to act as if they had been oh. another house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, and, how funny! <laughs> and that kind of gave me a little bit of exposure within my own country. Yeah. But still nothing came of it. You know, I was sat in studios trying to record with some of the biggest producers and they still wouldn't record me. They're just like, well, we're working on this. And I'd go there at like six in the morning and leave yeah. there at like 12 at night just so I could record. Yeah. And nothing came of it. I ended up going back and forth between Zimbabwe and Zambia and me and a few people. Nothing really happened. Went into the house as a housemate. And then my world changed completely overnight. Like when I came out of the house, the uh, Big Brother house in 2014, it was like, wow. Everyone was like, yo, 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 yo. Let's work. Let's do this. Let's do this. Oh, and I was wow, like, yeah. Okay, cool. The next variety kicks it off. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of, that's where I can say, honestly speaking, I felt like my career started in 2015. You know, where yeah. I, I, Finally, was recording a lot more. I had found um, producers that actually were trying to shape my sound and shape what I was like. They're trying to get in my head. They weren't just yeah. making stuff and I was jumping on it, which is what I was yeah. doing initially. You know, even yeah. in Manchester, it was like, oh, my boy would make a track and I'll jump on it as myself. But it was, it wasn't me. It wasn't my sound. It was his sound. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah so 2015 was the, the where I started to discover my thing, like my Afrofusion sound that I was kind of going with. Um, been back and forth since 2017. Um, and in 2017, I recorded and produced my first EP. This is after now nearly 10 years of recording. And that was the first time I actually put together a piece of work where I was like, yeah, let me, let me see how I can actually break into this industry as Jerome. So yeah. talking about that, if you don't mind, I'm going to... Oh, mate, I, that was, <laughs> you, you've read my mind. I was going to say, like, uh, feel free to uh, elaborate musically. Yeah, so I'm not... I was, as I said, I was never ever the greatest of musicians. So what would happen is I would look, like, listen to songs that I liked, and then I would find the chord progression, and then I'd be like, okay, cool. That makes sense. Yeah. And that was the chord progression for Thinking About You by Frank Ocean, because I really liked the song. So I'm just going to give you a sample of Frank, basically. So do you not think so far ahead? Because I be thinking about forever. That's Frank Ocean. Sure, yeah. So Jerome took that... And it turned into... I'm staring at your face But I get lost in your eyes Ain't picking up the pace I'm gonna take it slow, slow, so slow You're looking at your phone But I don't 
want you to go Ain't got your jacket, but I'm keeping you warm tonight No need to complicate these issues I'ma kiss you And make love until the morning like Strawberry moon Oh, you got me Singing like strawberry moon Oh, you got me You got me So, <laughs> pretty much That was um, a song I wrote After I got with my current partner Who now carries my second child's on the way <laughs> Okay, um, it's about yeah. her <laughs> and yeah, Strawberry Moon is talking about love. Yeah. Her father had said something to to us um, in Zambia. I picked him up from the bus stop, and he was like, um, "The moon's pink," um, and that's due to all the chemicals and the gases in the in the atmosphere, you know. And it, it's a one-off event. It happens maybe once or twice in a lifetime, in someone's lifetime. Yeah. And I was like, "Wow." It sounds like he's explaining love, you know, and Strawberry Moon. That's that's how it came. Is I looked oh, I at like the, moon that. the the, the oh. rarity of the uh, natural phenomenon. Well, um, so there's a few people who have uh, who, who like that. I mean, we've got Gando, and we've got uh, Mariah DeVries. Mariah was the first person that I um, interviewed on this. So she's a, and she's an amazing singer songwriter. So you got the clap <laughs> from her. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I find it. I find it really interesting because it, we, I, I've not really talked to many, I mean, I've interviewed a few people now for these sessions and we didn't really discuss um, uh, the inspiration element of songwriting. Because I think in a way, and it's really, you know what I really like about what you said is that in a way it's a bit of a sort of like taboo subject because you don't want to admit as a singer-songwriter that you basically stole stuff from somebody else, right? Everyone wants to think that they're that they have this kind of like complete original yeah. creative thing. Yeah. And the reality is, it doesn't matter who you are. They've, you know, there's 25, 30 million songs that have been produced. There's only so many chord progressions. You're going to rip it off someone else. And it's funny because I was going to play a song tonight um, and talk about it as well, which. Uh, has a really interesting history from that perspective because um, uh, I wrote a song called Predictable and it's kind of one of my poppier songs. And um, once I'd written it and I produced it on the album, I was then sat there and um, I was listening to it and I, it just suddenly dawned on me that I'd, I'd stolen the chord progression from Ed Sheeran. And like that, for me, that was like, that was like a, it was like a bolt to the heart. I was like, no, but I was like too far into, we'd already been to the studio. And anyway, so it's just a nightmare but so it's interesting i had to get over my pride because of it because I, I came up with this song and i thought okay it's a really cool song i really like it and then i my pride almost made me throw it away because i was like oh, i can't do something that that i've ripped off so clearly from somebody else but you know what i love about what you said is that actually you're just you're just up front about it and you're like you know what i love the frank ocean song and i want to put my own spin on it and i, I think that's cool man that's really cool <laughs> Because <laughs> pr pride gets in the way. But. Yeah, I mean, uh, you hear it so often. Like a lot of artists, 
that's their biggest downfall. Oh, Gando says he's going to follow you. Joshua. Oh, it's Joshua. Joshua Gando. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Joshua. Sorry, I presume Gando was your first name. Although Gando Joshua sounds like a really cool artist name, actually, doesn't it? <laughs> like, like Elton John, like, switch them around. True. Anyway, sorry, carry True. on. Carry on. Yeah. So, I mean, the truth is we all take inspiration from something, you know. Um, to think as creatives that we kind of sit in a, in a little, on an island and somehow these ideas just come to fulfillment, you know. It does, for me, it's like you, you, you are lying to yourself majority of the time because you live in a world where there's so much influence. Like you're online, you're... Um, you're, you're listening to all the greats whenever you feel like you've got access to so much more. You know, you go out, like before the pandemic, I would go out to coffee places and just listen to people's conversations while I have a coffee because I know that I'm writing about life. Yeah. So, you know, we're constantly stealing. Yeah. That's what we do. Like that, that is what we do. We constantly yeah. steal people's stories you know, and taking inspiration from something that is good is, is there's nothing wrong with that. If you like something, it's just how do you make it your own? And I guess I got that from my dad from when I was a kid is you'll sing the song as if it's your own. You'll, so when you take something, it's not about stealing it and plagiarizing it. It's about actually taking what you like from it, the essence that you like from it and holding on to that and then working with that. I, I do believe that the the way that creative industries are seen these days has, has evolved into something that's a lot more authentic in, in that way. And it's, it's interesting because you could argue that there's a lot of, there's a lot of repetition, there's a lot of um, building on what people have done before in the creative industries these days. Like you look at TikTok, for example. TikTok is all about imitation. Um, and there's a huge amount of creativity there. And instead of having this system where we sort of like pretend as creatives that we have some sort of like, you know, amazing inspiration that comes from nowhere like it's like maybe if you go back 50 years ago when sort of every you know, nobody really knew where they were getting their inspiration from and they kind of like hide it to themselves and go oh it's just my creative genius i think these days you can't get away with that so much so it's a lot more upfront it's a lot more authentic and honest of people just saying yeah like we're just part of a bigger thing we're part of this this flowering tree which is sort of like sprouting creative branches everywhere. And you're, you might be part of this branch here and part of that branch there. And you're just a stepping stone in like creating this bigger picture. And um, it's quite exciting actually to, to be part of that and to be honest about that instead of sort of trying to pretend like we're, you know, sort of. anyway, so what I thought I'd do is, shall I, shall I show you this, uh, this Ed Sheeran ripoff song? And <laughs> please, please. I, again, I, should, I shouldn't be calling it a ripoff because like, like this, this is really, it's a really cathartic conversation for me to like accept the fact that I've, you know, been inspired by the great man, Ed Sheeran. But, um, so, it's a good um, place to take inspiration from. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, if I could, uh, if I could somehow, um, move that inspiration into a little, you know, at least a, part of his uh, income, that'd be great. Um, so the Ed Sheeran song that I ripped, I, I ripped off by accident, is, um, <clears throat> is Don't. And it goes like, um, like that. So that's the chord structure. And um, how to, how to, I think it goes, um, um, 
Met this girl late last year She said don't you worry if I disappear I'm not really looking for another mistake I called an old friend thinking that the trouble would wait And then I jumped right in Anyway, so it's sort of like it's this chord structure and then it's this almost like talky melody and so I didn't realise what was going on in my mind but basically I wrote a song that goes like this Let me reminisce a story about a girl I used to know well, she would look into your soul while you were talking Leave you with a stone cold afterglow I gave her four or five words and I was falling I could have sworn she felt it too So imagine my surprise at going all in Sitting on a seven and a fucking two She said I love you but I don't love you like that How predictable oh, She got a hold on another heart She said I don't know why this always seems to happen Baby you were doing from the very start, no, no, no. Oh, she got a hold on another heart. Well, I don't know why this always seems to happen. Baby, you were doomed from the very start. She said, I love you, but I don't love you like that. How predictable. Oh. Anyway, so basically, <laughs> it's it's just a complete rip-off of this. <laughs> but it's not, I love it. It's not. It's not. You you added a nice swing to it. But I did a really nice I'm, I'm glad, you know what, I'm glad that you noticed that. <laughs> but I think, but I think that's, you know, going back to this thing, I clearly still have an issue around it. I still, I still sort of apologize for the ripping, ripping off of it. Yeah. You know, the, the chord structure is similar. Um, you're right, the swing slightly different, the tempo slightly different, but the, and there's a few little bits of difference, but I don't know that anyone that's listened to that song and gone, ah, it's just Ed Sheeran you know so it's interesting because i feel like i need to stop i need to stop um apologizing for the inspiration from ed and just embrace it just say you know what he's a great singer songwriter he's he i i really like that song don't even though I, my heart is in maybe slightly more mature melancholic singer songwriter stuff but you know what? i just gotta accept it you know he's he inspired me and i'm gonna say yes i was inspired by a cheering <laughs> Man, the boy is amazing. The boy is like the number one songwriter in the world right now, um, without a shadow of a doubt. He writes like, for yeah, he writes for everybody. And it's 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 not just the fact that he's writing for everybody. It's the scale of which he's writing for them. You know, it's like you're producing hit after hit after hit. And I'm not saying that once you're in the circle, you're in the circle. But still, to be that versatile, to be able to kick out that many songs a year is not easy, you know, it doesn't matter how creative you are. And I, I mean, I can see where he takes his inspirations from as well, you know, and I think, oh, wow, okay, cool. Like, he's listened to a bit of Bob Dylan and I can I can hear it in, in a lot of his stuff. You know, he's listened to um, a few of the Motown acts as well, which is cool. Like, for me, that's cool because yeah. that's what we're doing is we're taking what's inspired us to do what we're doing and we're just putting it into practice which not yeah. many people can do, yeah. you know? So the question, the question begs, what do you think about the, the, the culture of suing um, artists for songs that are similar? Because Ed Sheeran got sued by the, was it the Marvin Gaye family for stealing 
some thing, some chord progression. And I mean, basically, it's it's the you know there's a few few artists. I think Taylor Swift's been sued. I think. Um, uh, yeah. So, how, how, what do you feel about that? Do you feel like, do you feel like if if let's say Jerome Arab next year releases a song that has a similar chord structure to a Motown classic, and does really well, and you own yourself ten million quid, um, what? How do you? How would you feel from that perspective if somebody basically coming up to you and saying, actually, I think you should share the money that you earn because, you know, it's inspired from that. Okay, let's put it this way. When we talk about copyright infringements is no one can hold the code progression. Like I can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't sue you for using a certain progression. I can't sue you for that. Yeah. But I can sue you for basically playing the exact same melody, the exact same way and putting it out there. You understand what I mean? Is that it has sure, to be yeah. very close. Yeah. So I always say if I rip somebody and I get sued for it, it's their intellectual property. But that's why I keep saying you have to add your flavor. You have to add your twist. What is it about the, the progression? Because the truth is you would stumble upon the progression anyway. Sure. There's very, it's, it's not like, there's only 12 like notes in the yeah. whole music <laughs> yeah you're gonna struggle not to use a progression yeah yeah and it's i i worry i worry about the um the precedent that's being set because some of the some of the court cases that have been brought against musicians um have been pretty ropey and yet they've been successful and there, there's a there's a worrying precedent that's being set where basically if you if you try hard enough you've got enough money you can basically sue anyone for anything and that's sort of worrying in a creative industry. I feel like that would, that would sort of dilute the enthusiasm for coming up with stuff. So. Well, bro, the way I look at it is I'll put out stuff. And if I get sued for it, it's money. That's all it is. You, what are you yeah. suing me for? You're suing me yeah. for money. So yeah. the truth is I'll say openly in court, we can either cut the deal or if it's not, then we just go all the way because it can be settled out of court. Yeah. A lot of these, if every, the whole, this is where I think artists get it twisted. We're in the music business. Yeah. That's what we're in. Everything is about deals, is you're cutting deals. That's what I suppose, I suppose the, um, you know, if, you've, if you're lucky enough to be sued by someone, you probably made a fair amount of good money from <laughs> your trucking area. But okay, so here's, here's the other way around. Um, someone, I don't know, Drake let's say, hypothetically, release a song next year, and it sounds suspiciously like a Jerome Arab song from four years ago, right? Yeah. And you think, hang on a minute, there's a bit too much of my stuff in that song for me to ignore it. How do you feel on the other end of the spectrum as the person who's been the inspiration but hasn't got any of the money back? The way, okay, so it has happened to me on a smaller scale. Oh, okay. um, still, still quite big, but still on a smaller scale. Party Up, I never got any money for Party Up. It done exceptionally well. We're in the top 10 beatport charts for three weeks running in the top 100 for, I think, over like three months or something along those lines. Wow. I never, seen, I never seen anything for it. I don't blame anybody. That was on my part. I never registered things correctly. I never like, handled the the business side correctly. Um, there's a song that we produced in Zambia as well um, in 2015 
I think it was. Yeah. And then in 2017, there was an AFCON Cup, the Africa Cup of Nations, basically. Sure, yeah. And yeah. the theme song was recorded by Diamond Platinum and a Namibian um, artist. Can't remember the Namibian artist's name. They had ripped the song. Like, pretty much the same vibe, same chord progression. It's... I'll, I'll even I'll send you the links and you can tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. I'd love to see the comparison. Yeah. But then again, we at, in 2015, I wasn't registered with PRS. I wasn't registered with any um, companies. I hadn't registered the songs correctly. So even though I can prove that I created the intellectual property, I hadn't registered it. So according to law, it's just an idea. Yeah, I suppose that's uh, yeah. I suppose that's the problem, isn't it? Is then you sort of stray down that road of when you actually have to start proving dates and you know this came before that and all that. I mean, it just becomes a sort of like you know. But if it's Drake, I'm going to court because <laughs> yeah. I know the hype that's around hey, it. I'll, I'll be your lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go in together. We're going all, all guns. Well, because the truth is, even if I lose that case. The exposure I'm getting from that case, yeah, exactly. my career is good. People Everyone are listening like, to my music. Drake ripped off who? Jerome Aaron? <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> you suddenly overnight you have like fifteen thousand more followers on Instagram. You're great. <laughs> cool, man. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, because it's something that I'm interested in. Um, yeah. How does the scene, especially the grassroots, like on the ground scene, live gigs? you know, making, making connections with fans, that sort of thing. How does the scene differ in uh, Zimbabwe and Zambia and perhaps some of the other African states that you've, you've played in compared yeah. to the European scene? Um, culturally, in Europe, people go to festivals and go to shows just because that's what they do. Yeah. You it's understand what I mean? What they spend their money on, right? You know, it's like, oh, I'm just a festival person. Tick, tick. Yeah. For yeah, sure. like, there's a gig happening at such and such a pub. Oh, who's playing? They don't really care. They ask the question just so that they kind of have a different, an idea of, oh, so it's this sound. But they're still going to go and check it out. That's the yeah. culture in Europe. Yeah. Whereas in, in Africa, it's very much so, who is playing? Right. So yeah. that 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 suggests to me that it's a struggle as a as a new artist then i mean okay it's a struggle for everyone but more of a struggle as a new artist to break into the live scene perhaps um is that is it would you say that's sort of southern africa wide or is that is that tailored that's, to specific places that's quite that's the continent on a very large scale yeah so what happens is when you're on the come up the formula in africa is have a hit song, have a banger that's being played everywhere. Push the music video, push the banger, make sure, sure people know who you are. And then you approach festivals because you have the most happening song. You're more likely to get bookings and people, you could sing your song, that one song, six, seven times and the crowd yeah. is drunk and they're all right with that. Yeah. Uh, don't sing stuff they don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you say that there's maybe there's a little bit more I mean, it sounds like a bit of a negative word, but slightly more fickle in people's tastes. So then they're they're less people are a bit less um uh welcoming to artists and tracks that they haven't heard before, maybe? Yeah, I mean it's there's a number of factors. Language is also one of them. In Africa, if you 
they, they, they use the word blow. You know, if you've blown as an artist, if you've made yeah. it, then you're good because then you're, you, everyone knows your songs and then yeah. they'll come and see you. The promoters will not book you if you do not have any pull. Like if, yeah. if, you're, if you have 2,000 followers on your socials, like Jerome Arab, and yeah. you, you're doing okay, you're releasing music, you've got a great catalog, you can perform live for three, four hours straight with your band. They won't, they won't pay Jerome to come and do that. They'll yeah. rather pay a covers band, who's, which are going to sing songs that the crowd knows, sure. than pay Jerome, yeah. who has all of this original like, material. And yeah. that I found is quite clear in Africa. In, in the UK, there's a scene for you when you're starting up. There's a scene for when you're established. There's, like, like there's so many different ways for you to break into the industry or be part of the industry. In sure. Africa, it's, it's quite limited. It's either your covers band or you've made it. There's nothing in between. Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah. it sounds, sounds difficult then. We said more difficult. I suppose I suppose that's what you're saying, right? Is that it's it's more difficult to? But then I suppose would you say that there's there's less competition in Zimbabwe and Zambia? Way more competition. More competition. Yeah, so more more competition, less opportunity. Just harder in general. People look at Africa and they assume Africa's in the dark ages, you know, like for sure. We only hear this music. A lot of the music that people hear, artists that are recording in yeah. the Western world, that's what you're hearing. The artists on the continent, there's still like a few that are, are doing some amazing things from the continent. But the ones in, like actually on the continent making things work, there's so many. Like every three, like three or four houses, you've got somebody who's got studio equipment. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's what it's like. Yeah. And everyone wants to be an artist. It's, it's interesting. I, I, uh, it, it, it's a fascinating thing because I've, I've had the privilege to um, have traveled a little bit and there's a few places I've been to. One place that stand, stood out for me was Maputo in Mozambique. It's a, an amazing art city. And I was, I mean, I, I, was, I lived in, in Angola um, over 10 years ago, 12, 12 years ago or so. And so I visited Mo Mozambique and Maputo in 2008, 2009. So it was a while ago, but even then it was, it was a huge, vibrant arts community. And I was, I was a little bit surprised and, and like in a good way for that. Yeah. Um, and, and I, it's interesting because I feel like in certain hubs, there's, there's an amazing creative pulse, but I suppose yeah. like countrywide, let's say in, in, in Mozambique, there simply isn't infrastructure outside of the capital to have a nice, venue that's dedicated to artists it's sort of like it's a lofty thing it's like a, it's something that comes after a lot of development and i suppose that's the advantage in europe is that development has been going on a lot longer which means there's there's more opportunity for um playing in venues and pubs and and sort of artistic money for arts i guess in smaller areas as well as the big cities and i yeah. feel like outside the big cities there's basically nothing for you yeah. to latch on to yeah. but there's probably a lot of people who still want to involved in the arts so so that's exactly it is so you have all the big cities that have the, the the festivals and stuff and then you've got basically artists that want to play at those festivals from everywhere yeah so it's like you have in zimbabwe you've got some of the the nice festivals um when we were growing up were like haifa 
which is our international festival that's quite big. I mean, now there's like Jacaranda. There's a few. There's like five festivals a year that everyone wants to play. Mm. And then you've got like a good, what, 50,000 artists? Yeah. Competition is absolutely crazy. And there's one little thing. I, I've got a question for you, actually, just before I'm going to ask you to, to play another little song, if that's okay. But I have one yeah. question before you do that is you mentioned language. And um, my experience of Southern Africa in particular is that in Angola, let's say, as an example, and, and Mozambique is another example, you have the overarching language, which is the sort of colonial language, Portuguese. But within the country, you have maybe five or six common tongues um, and they're quite regionalized. And that tends to be the way for a lot of Southern African countries. And you mentioned language a little bit when you're saying, when you talk about music and, um, and how it affects, but, but there's definitely more languages that are more widely spoken in Southern Africa than Europe. And I'd be interested to know what you think about um, the use of language in music from the artist's perspective in, in Southern Africa. Yeah, I mean, the artists that are big on the continent all sing in some sort of a local kind of language. Okay. If you think about it. If I were to give you, like, the, with the Nigerians, they do a pidgin more. So it's still English, but it's, it's more of a local-sounding English. Sure. And that just means that majority of Nigeria can relate to their music. That's like a good 100-something million people, 200 million people that can understand what you say. Yeah. That's like the, over, the overall language. Um, when you think about it from Zimbabwe, there's about 15 million in population and maybe 5 million of them will be Shona um, speakers and then another like 5 million will be in Debele and then the rest, there's like other languages will make up the rest. So if yeah. you're singing in Shona when Debele, like you still got a bit of, like you still got like maybe 10 million people you could reach with those yeah. languages. But you see what I'm saying about the language sure. is... It's so easy like to think, I grew up speaking English. I grew up in an urban area in, in Zimbabwe. I didn't yeah. learn how to speak Shona until I was like 21. Yeah. And I wish I, I did because there's so much, like the people that are doing well have songs in Shona, rap yeah. in Shona and English. You know, even in Zambia, the biggest rapper in Zambia used to rap in English and then he, he changed to one of the mother tongues, which is Bemba. And Chef 187 is like a household name there yeah. all of a sudden, you know, and it's language. It is whether people want to hide from it or not. Like I've done songs where I've opened up with a Portuguese statement, you know, because my mom's sure. Portuguese. And okay. I, found, I found that I got traction from it, like no. little traction. But yeah. people were like, oh, you know, in Southern Africa, like, oh, the Mozambicans were like, oh, okay, we can relate to that. Um, when I wrote My World, all the Shona speakers and people part of the Shona culture were like, okay, he sings in English. And then when he sings in Shona, oh my gosh. And it was, that's, in fact, I'll, I was, I'll, I'll go I'll, into if you, if you could sing a little bit in some Shona, that'd be amazing. But it's, it's up to you, man. I'll, I'll let um, you. So I'm singing the second verse because that's the Shona verse. Okay, amazing, cool. So are you feeling me? Cause I'm feeling you 
believe in me. Yes, what I will do. Nani uno gara uchi seka. Unguri epi chete. Nani uno gara uchi fara. Baby, are we compatible? I need to know my incredible. Cause when I see you, honey, I'm going to roll. When I'm with you, moyo wangu eno tanga kutabirirwa. Inindi no kuda. You mean the world to me. <laughs> Man, I love that. I love, and, and honestly, the um, the the interplay between the two languages is so natural for you as well. Like I think that's really cool. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm not I'm not such a linguist, but it sort of it sort of reminded me a little bit of Swahili. I don't know if that's if that's fair to yeah, say. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no, no. It's quite Shona. They bond two languages, so they're quite connected. There's a lot of similar okay. sounding words and words that kind of mean the same thing, you know. Um, so yeah, I've also put like Swahili in some songs, and the reason why I've done that is because. I've never, I've never grown up speaking a local language. So yeah. when I was writing this song, I was like, okay, I had to take the simple Shona I know and put it into the song. Yeah. And then the parts that I can't sing in Shona, I was like, okay, I'll add the English because I don't know how to say it as, as smoothly in that language. Sure. You know? um, but it's, it's been a learning process and it's been good because it's helped me understand that it's about communicating with people. That's what the music is about. Yeah, it's, sure. it's, it's to do. It's everything to do with the person that you're, you're, you're kind of, when you're writing the song, you know, a lot of artists get caught up in telling their story and it's all about them and their story, but it's actually about the lessons in your story that people can learn from and people that you're sharing with people that they can Perfect. take away with, that can help them understand either what they're going through or help them um, enjoy a, a particular moment in their life that's all you're doing is you're helping them through certain experiences that's that's basically it you know that's that. the yeah, it's, it's so true as well right and it, i always feel that for me as well is is that it's um music becomes a soundtrack for, for my life not necessarily from my perspective as a musician but the music i listen to becomes becomes the the i don't know the the um the concrete kind of mixing like yeah. between the bricks you know somehow it, and it sort of just solidifies everything together so and it's true like it I, I may attach myself to something in a song which perhaps wasn't the original meaning of the original artist but that's what it meant to me so yeah it's a really cool thing and i, I really like like um i really like that idea of um of of having that multifaceted element to your music. So obviously, obviously you have the history in, in Zimbabwe, you have your experiences of, of growing up there and that's, uh, and the different languages Shona and the different languages that, that um, you, you were speaking when you got older. And, and I think to incorporate that and sort of like for it to be part of your story and part of your music moving forward is, is a really powerful thing. I think one of the problems actually that isn't spoken much about in England and the UK is that we're kind of like stuck because music has become the international or English has become the international language of music, which means in a way I don't, my, the identity in my music has to be from something else rather than the language. And part of me is a little bit jealous that I don't have 
Like if I was Welsh, maybe I'd sing in Welsh a little bit as well, like and have a bit more identity with the music. But simply being English is is kind of like it's kind of like whitewashed the if you excuse the phrase, but sort of whitewashed the sort of linguistic element of my creativity. But, yeah anyway it's interesting <laughs> no, 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 i get i get where you're coming from when you think about it, it it's a tough it, it is tough in that sense it's like okay so but then you that's when you ask yourself what is it that you're capturing you know like what is it yeah. that you're trying to say and you'll find like that's why i think ed sheeran is one of the greatest songwriters of all time is he just knew how to speak to everybody drake same thing yeah. drake is definitely one of those even if he, he's got ghostwriters, his songs just speak to so many people of all different walks of life. And that is, is something else to do, to be able to write for that many people without even thinking about it. Like, I mean, maybe these guys do think about it. I don't know. I've never really had the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, try call, I'll call Ed next week. And yeah, <laughs> exactly. Get, get his secrets. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I love that somebody. Um, well, I think I imagine one of your followers, Prince of Zambia, has just joined. That's an amazing name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Prince. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of the time, I found with artists is we're always seeking some sort of like approval to to do what we do. We want people to like us, and that's because of social sure. media. You know, yeah. the modern day way of consumption is people. People ask me, okay, Jay, so when you drop in the next album, and from the beginning of 2020, I wanted to release a song a week because it doesn't make sense releasing albums. The way people consume music, yeah. no one's really listening. Unless you've got a strong following, they're not listening to, to your album. So I was like, okay, so I want to do a song every week. And it gives people a chance to digest it and move on, you know, to the next one. Yeah. That's that's kind of like my take on, on where we're at right now. And even in your writing, then you, you kind of challenge yourself to, to constantly be working towards the next track. And you're not looking at, oh, well, this track must get 1 million streams and this track needs to make me, you know, people must hear this. It's like, no, yeah, people must hear this, but I'm not going to stop creating just yeah. so that I can make sure you hear this let the song do what it needs to do. You know, if it gets heard in 20 years, that's, that's up to, like, that's up to the world. If it gets heard in 50 years, that's up to the world. What sure. you have to do and your job, I feel as a creator, or as a songwriter is to just keep putting it out yeah. until, until you can't put it on no more. Yeah, man. So that, that leads me on to a really nice point actually of, um, we talked about the past. We've talked about the present, like, what would you say the the future holds for you? So short term, maybe coming out of this whole thing with COVID and all the problems we've had with COVID and then moving forward, like what, what does the next sort of phase musically for you entail? Um, I've been trying to figure out how to fund my career for the longest time. You know, I've, I've struggled to, to see how to, to do it when you haven't got shows coming in. Um, because streams, streams, even if you play the playlist game, you're not going to make that much money unless you're doing millions. Um, and it's going to cost you a few thousands to get there. So I heard about Patreon. So any artists that are out there that got a decent following, even if you've got 10 people, get on Patreon and get those people to become members and offer them a package, you know, offer them access to what you're doing. 
I just want to create and create until I can't create no more. So come next year, I want to release 50 something songs. That's my goal. So every week I want them to have a new song. And if my Patreon account can get to $500, that's possible. If it can get to a thousand dollars, I will drop a music video and I'll push it on as many platforms as possible. So it will go on on um, continental TV on in Africa. I'll push it for TV here. You know, like I will push with the resources I have and with the, the network I have. You know, if as the money climbs, I will carry on to create. Like I'll just carry on creating. So we'll go from music to short films, hopefully to feature films, to docu films. Um, back in the acting and directing world, my job is to create. That's that's what Jerome was born to do, and that's what I plan on doing. Amazing. I think that's a very, it's a very good plan. You know, you're uh, diversifying into the, the modern era of creativity and Patreon's a really great tool. And uh, you're inspiring me, Jerome, that's the thing. Hey, we've uh, we pretty much run out of time, but I wanted to say um, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Um, you've got some love. Uh, Nick Brick said, uh, the great Arab is a very clever man, a very interesting hour. Hi, and, thank uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> and i would i would i would certainly agree um so how um for those of you those, those guys um watching at home if they want to know more about you um what sort of spaces do you have online obviously you've got your instagram account but where's the best place to go to to find out more about jerome Marib? um right now i'm gearing everything to towards patreon i'm not gonna lie um so come yeah. january patreon will have like access to my life on a very different wavelength it'll be pretty much you'll see the creation like the creation process you'll hear the songs before everyone else you'll see the music videos before everyone else and depending on what tier you're on will also help decide where um we should go as as a tribe because i don't believe that i exist alone you know like i believe that people have contributed to my success and therefore i feel like i should actually engage with people and that's what I want to do is I want to give to the, the true fans. But For you sure. can get me on Instagram. You can get me on Facebook. It's Instagram's The Great Arab. Um, on Twitter, it's The African Arab. Um, you can get me also on The African Arab on Facebook. I'm on Trilla as Jerome Arab. I'm on TikTok as Jerome Arab as well. Oh, I'm going to add you on TikTok. I joined not quite recently. <laughs> yeah. I'll go find your TikTok. My TikTok sucks. I'm, I didn't realize <laughs> how old I was. <laughs> I honestly, I did not realize how old I was until uh, I go on TikTok, yeah. watched a few of them, and I was like, okay, um, I need to either engage my son, who's three, or, <laughs> <He probably laughs> or really study this. Like, yeah, so my TikTok's not all that, but my Patreon, as I said, is going to be putting out a lot of the content that we're talking about. There'll be a lot of music, a lot of these type of talks as well. I'm going to be putting out a, a thing called Let's Talk, which is Amazing. me speaking to artists. I'll probably hopefully get you on as well. Oh, man, I'd um, love to come on. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be really yeah, cool. And that's, that's we'll talk more, more about things that actually can help people progress. That's the, the whole point of what Perfect. Jerome Arab has become about. It's how do I then help Jeremy reach his goals, you know, with the knowledge I have and with I'll, the network. <laughs> and the network I have, you know, as Jeremy says he wants to perform at Coachella, how do we make it happen? That's that's how I'm I'm feeling. If he says he wants to be on the Glastow main stage, how do we make that happen? And that's where I feel are my strengths is in creating the journey that people would most likely reap those type of results or rewards. 
you. Amazing. Hey, man, thank you so much for this uh, this time with me today. And um, I have to say, I, I, you're just down the road from me at the minute. So hopefully um, before I head off and before you head off on our next adventures, we'll be able to grab a drink and and uh, and cheers to the end of hopefully the end of the lockdowns in the UK. <laughs> but I, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. Thanks so much. Um, thanks, everyone for who's watching at home, everyone who's catching up um, either on the podcast or, or later on. Um, uh, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, thank you very much, Drew Marab again. And um, see you next time. I've got a stream on Thursday, uh, which is my 6pm stream um, of like upbeat covers. So people can come on to that. But yeah, thank you very much, Jerome, J-Man. And uh, we'll, I'll speak to you very soon, I have no doubt. Thank you. Peace. Cheers, brother. See you soon. Ciao. Bye. Ciao. Thanks very much for tuning into this episode of Jazzology. If you liked what you heard and would like to help this podcast grow, then please share, like, and subscribe on your preferred social media channel and, of course, the podcast platform you're listening on. If you'd like to know more about my guest, Jerome Arab, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Jerome Arab. And if you'd like to know more about me, then head to jeremyjohnson.co.uk. Thanks again for tuning in and see you on the next podcast.